Amen. Amen. If you would stand with me and open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, we are in chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. When you got it, say so. And it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly And will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Lord, thank you for your word that is true. Thank you for this time that we've been able to worship you in this place, God. We Thank you because you are enthroned in glory, God. And no matter what is going on in this earth, Lord God, you are in control. And so we thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you for this time in your word. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church today, even as you gave ears to those in the time that these words were written, God. We thank you for this and we pray this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so we are continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. And today is we're dealing with the third church that was written to, that Jesus spoke to. And that is the church of Pergamos. And a church of the, the church of Pergamos is known as the church that was a compromising church. And so just to give you a little bit of background, right, of, of who, who they are, um, Pergamos or Pergamum, that depends on which translation you have, is the third church Jesus addresses. It was known as one of the great cities. Uh, it was a capital city in Asia Minor. And so I have a couple of pictures that I want to show you. So the first picture is actually of what it looks like now. And so it's, I mean, you see that this is a huge city. I mean, beautiful place, right? I mean, great, you know, place to look at over the mountain, way way high up, beautiful, beautiful. And then this other picture that I want to show you is actually a picture of what Pergamos looked like. In the time when these words were being written. And so when you look at this place, you see all kinds of stuff that is there. And what I want you to notice, right, is all of the different temples that are there. You see the Athena's temple. You see Dionysus' temple. You see Zeus's altar. I mean, there's all kinds of places of worship in this city. And so Pergamon is is a pretty important city. And when you look at it, it was actually one one of the first places to 
build a temple to the Caesars. And so it was a place where the worship of Caesar and uh, of those emperors, emperor worship was serious in this city, as you can see with the worship of many other idols. According to history, it was actually one of the eight, it has one of the eight ancient legendary libraries in it. It was the, what they said was that it was second to only the one that was in, in Rome itself. And so this place, they had like 200,000 um, books or writings that were there in this library. So pretty important place. Obviously, these were people that were given to knowledge, which is kind of where you get this uh, idea of the Nicolaitans. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, Pergamum was also known for the production of parchment paper. Uh, as you saw, there were a bunch of temples there, temples to different gods, and there was one temple that was especially connected to their university of medicine, and so they, they, um, this one was known as the god of Pergamum, or um, Asclepios was the name of this god, and he was the god of healing, symbolized by a serpent wrapped around a stick, kind of like something we know today, right? And so... This was a pretty uh, intense place. Why does all of this matter, right? Because context, right? This gives you the context to which they were receiving this letter. If someone, if, if someone goes, if you could, if, you know, if, if Back to the Future was, was actually true, right, and you could get the DeLorean and you could get in the car and, you know, go backwards and then go forward, you would see some stuff. So if you went forward in the future, right, and you looked back to 2021 and 2020 and someone was writing a letter talking about the coronavirus and you didn't know what was going on during this time, you'd be lost, right? You'd be like, I, I, don't, I don't really get the context of what's happening. You know, what was going on? in the United States at that time. Well, it's the same thing here. If we want to understand the context of the church of Pergamum and what Jesus is actually or how he's communicating to them, then we have to know some context and kind of put yourself in that moment as Sister Cheryl was leading us in worship. She read through Revelation 5, a portion of that. And what does that do? That gives us a good context for worship. It paints a picture for us to understand what we are doing as we are engaging in our worship. And so Pergamos is this great city. And what I want you to think about this morning is this, is compromise in, the, in church life is the product of compromise in biblical truth. Compromise in church life is the product of compromise and biblical truth. And so what happens is if we start living compromise, it's because we have compromised what we believe to be true. When your beliefs start to change, right, all of a sudden things begin to change in your behavior. That's what follows. Whatever you believe, that's how you act. See, that's why you can say you believe this, that, or the other, but your actions really show what you believe. Right? You, you, your actions show what you really believe to be true. Your behavior just shows that. And so when the church begins to compromise, it's because it has already started to compromise in the truth. And so the first thing I would ask for you to repeat for me today is this. Say, no matter our environment, no matter our environment faithfulness, is possible, faithfulness is possible and compromise unnecessary. No matter the, I just showed you the environment, right? 
surround, I mean, that, that's a beautiful city. Is it not? I mean, sit up on a hill. Everybody wants to live up on a hill. Come on, now looking over the Aegean Sea. I mean, that's like the place where you want to be, right? I mean, this was a beautiful city, right? I mean, the, the emperors came there to, to, to be worshipped, to be vet. I mean, they looked at this city as an important place. And this, play, this city was no stranger to multiple gods, which means, you know, if you have multiple gods, right, that means you have multiple beliefs that are being filtered into the city life and what is going on in Pergamon. So prior to the church coming there and prior to Jesus being proclaimed there, this was a city that was given to idolatry. This was a city that was given to, you know, Gnosticism, right, the, 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 the worship of knowledge. And so this, this was a place where it's easy to, you know, make excuses. Hey, it's the environment, right? You, you've heard that before, right? It was how I was raised. I mean, some of you might have said that in your marriages. Come on now. Talk to your children. Well, that's just how I was raised. That's how I am. That's who. Wait, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. Environment does dictate some stuff. Let's not get it twisted. However, when Jesus enters our life, he should change some stuff as well, should he not? He should align us to his own heart. He should align us to his own will. He should align us to his wisdom. And how does he do that? He does that through his word. So in the midst of it, the church of Pergamos, as we saw, was surrounded by idolatry, surrounded by the pressure to partake in the social life of the city, and even bow now to the political powers, yet they are commended. What does Jesus commend them for? Because they didn't do that. Let's read these words of encouragement again. Verse 12 to verse 13 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword pointing us back to chapter 1 where he is depicted as having this two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And so this is the revelation. Remember, Jesus gives the revelation that is necessary to support the message that he's bringing to the church. And so he tells them it is the one one who has the two-edged sword in verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell. He knows where our dwelling is, what the atmosphere, where our dwelling is and what the atmosphere is, where Satan's throne is. Now just think about that for a moment. Jesus is saying that's where Satan's throne is. Remember the, the synagogue of Satan when we were talking about Smyrna? And now he's saying, wait, I know, you, you dwell where Satan's throne is. You dwell under this demonic influence, and in this place, he tells them clearly that is where you are, and yet he says, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So in the midst of it, Antipas, this martyr, we don't know anything about him except that he was killed for the faith. We don't, we, we don't know exactly how it all went down. We only know what Jesus says here is that you in the midst of this where Satan dwells, in the midst of this where Satan's throne is, in the midst of this where this difficult moment, which is like, hey, Antipas, are you going to deny the faith? I mean, really, come on, does this Jesus really matter? Look at all of the temples we have here in this city. Come on, I am, and probably, and I, I might repeat this later, but... But it's probable that the reason why Antipas was killed is because he refused emperor worship. We talked about this when we went through Romans, right? One of the things that, that, that Jesus, uh, that, that was commanded of the people who were under Roman rule was what? Caesar is Lord. But when Christians come to faith, they no longer say Caesar is Lord. They say Jesus is Lord. 
So we have this example of faithfulness in the midst of it all. The throne of Satan, what is it, what is it probably referring to? It is probably a reference to emperor worship. Because that is where they, where they came. Trajan was one of the, well, the first temple was built to Trajan. And so he was there. And from that temple, from that throne, he would do what? He would, he, would, he would declare rules. He would declare judgments, right? There was also a throne that was built to Zeus as well. And so either way, what we know is this, is that the, the, the synagogue of Satan that we talked about in Smyrna, that was a Jewish reference. But when you look at Satan's throne, it is a pagan reference. And yet, the church of Pergamos is what? They are encouraged for their faithfulness. The bottom line is this, is that idolatry, social pressure, persecution, hardship, or even the threat of death are not excuses to deny the faith. There's no reason that we can give to God and say, well, Lord, this situation was so bad I had to deny you, right? And, and listen, I'm, I'm not saying, I, I don't want to come across as saying like, God won't forgive you for that kind of stuff because I firmly believe that we deny him all the time. Every time we sin, we deny him, do we not? Every time that we obey our flesh over his will, we deny him. It may not be as great as standing before a tribunal and being given the choice, either declare Caesar is Lord or lose your life. It may not be that. It can simply be something as simple as honoring God with our finances. It can be honoring God in our marriages. It can be being a good neighbor. It could be doing good unto others. We deny those things, and what do we do? We're denying him, and yet he is merciful, he is gracious. But what we see here, the encouragement that comes to the church of Pergamos is that they were faithful no matter the pressure. But what should happen in the midst of all of this? When you are a follower of Jesus, when you are a follower of Christ, when those hardships, those difficulties, those circumstances are surrounding us, you know what should happen? Something should be provoked in us to have a greater desire to please God in the midst of it. The church of Pergamon, they were motivated by the hardship, by the persecution. They were motivated to live for the glory and honor of God. And you know what they knew? Here's what they knew. Because of the teaching that they were receiving because of what they understood. They understood, wait a second, that temple to Dionysus, I don't need to worship there. That, that, that throne to Zeus, I don't need to come to that place either. That altar to him, I don't need to bring sacrifices there. That All of those different places of worship, I don't need to bow there. You know what it did? It gave them the ability to know this is God and this is not. This pleases the Lord and this does not. And for us as believers, our encouragement in our present day is that we should learn to see, wait, those are idols in our culture. And we shouldn't bow to those same things. We shouldn't be given and motivated the same way that the rest of everyone else is motivated after those things. The second thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, we typically don't realize how important sound doctrine is until it's too late. We typically don't realize how important it is until we are way over the cliff. Oh, it's okay, just a little compromise. It's all right, we'll just ignore those little things. It really doesn't matter. Oh, it does matter. Because Jesus gives them these words of encouragement, but then he does what? He says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Those words always mess me up when I read them. I'm like, man, how many things do you have against me, Lord? 
makes me think, like, and I have to study this, right, to, to bring the message to you. And so I have to sit down and say, God, what, what things are in me that don't please you? What, what, what things are in me that, that need to change? And so he comes to them with this rebuke, but a few things I have against you. And he says, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, I want, I want to just pause for a moment because I want you to, 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 to realize this. He is not, again, I showed you the city, right? He's not upset because of the secularism in the city. He's not upset because of the people who go and worship at these temples, <clears throat> bring sacrifices. No, that's not what he is bothered with. Remember, he is writing this to the church, and so what he is saying to the church is, I have this against you because you have some that are within your midst, within your ranks, those that are in your worship, and they are holding to these doctrines that are unhealthy. So he says, the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And then he goes on in verse 15, and I told you in week one or, or the first church that we talked about that we would deal with the Nicolaitans, and we'll deal with them today. In verse 15, he says, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Say what you mean, Jesus. <laughs> not, 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 not something that just bothers me a little bit. No, no, no. Which thing I hate. You're allowing that in your worship. This is what he's communicating to the church here. So Jesus rebukes them for embracing these doctrines. And despite the fact, now think about this though, you got to get this. Despite the fact that they did not deny the faith, probably again referring to Antipas when he is before the tribunal, either Jesus is Lord or Caesar is Lord, they did not deny the faith. They continued on, they apparently bowed to a different kind of pressure. They began to listen to these false doctrines. So what are these doctrines? Well, the doctrine of Balaam, let's just run through that one. I mean, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, then you'll know the book of Numbers, chapter 22 to, verse, um, to chapter 31. It gives us reference to Balak, who was the king, who was fearful of Israel because he had heard of everything that they had done as they, as, as they were going in the desert, and he didn't want to experience God's judgment or their victory over him. And so what does he do? Well, he goes, to the, he goes to Balaam. Now, think about this. Balaam was a true prophet of God. When you read it, this wasn't some false prophet. This was a real prophet of the Lord. And what does he do? He goes to him. He says, hey, man, children of Israel lined up over here, and I, I don't want to experience the loss, and so I need you to do me a favor. I need you to curse them. And so Balaam is like, first, I'm not going. And then the Lord is like, oh, it's, it's kind of a confusing story. But, you know, and then Balaam almost gets killed because he is going. And remember, his donkey talks. Remember that? The donkey has a conversation. And he's like, yo, I've always been good to you. Why are you beating me, right? And the angel of the Lord is like, hey, you know, the, I, I'm going to kill you. Your donkey is smarter than you. That's, that, that's another message. But anyway, hallelujah. <laughs> smarter, dumber than a donkey. That's going to be the title of the sermon. Dumber than a donkey, right? 
And yet he comes, and what does he do? He tries to curse him on one level, another level, another level. Every time he goes to a different place on the mountain, he cannot do anything but speak the blessing of the Lord. And he's like, look, I told you, I can't speak except what God says. And this, is, to me, is where the clarity comes. The reason why God almost killed the guy, the reason why God went through all of that is because Balaam wouldn't leave it there, and God knew that. Balaam's like, look, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how to bring them under God's judgment. I can't speak a curse over them because what God has blessed you, you can't curse. But what I can do is I can show you how to get them to rebel against God and let God judge them. And what does he do? He teaches them, hey, send the ladies over there. Ladies, no offense. Draw them into a relationship, right, and, 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 and get friendly with them and let them begin to intermingle, and then they will start to worship your gods. And when they do that, guess what? It's a wrap because now God's going to judge them. Jesus says, some of you have given into this doctrine. Some of you have given it, and so this idolatry. See, think about the social life. Again, I just showed you the city for you so you can think about that. The social life, part of that social life was what? Eating foods sacrificed to idols, right? And so if I am going to be a person that's going to hang out with my neighbors, then guess what? Part of this is me probably eating some food. I'm participating in idolatry, right? You go back to Romans and you see Paul talks about this and he deals with the fact that, you know what, you know, you should, for someone's conscience, you, if they're bringing you and you know it's idolatrous food, you shouldn't eat of it because you don't want to offend their conscience. But yet, you know, you're in Pergamum, you know, you're in a, in a big city here. You know, you, you, you don't want to be the outcast, right? You don't, you, you still want to be part of that social life. And then all of a sudden you start partaking. They start partaking of this food. And so here's what you have to realize is that you cannot engage with idols positively without them affecting you personally and negatively. You can't engage in idolatry. You can't engage with the culture in a way that you're bowing to and running after the idols of the culture and those things not affect you. And then what ends up happening is, as you see this, what typically occurs is what follows idolatry is sexual immorality because you become the ultimate God and then all of a sudden you need to deal with your desires. The second group is this group of the Nicolaitans and this group, and, and when you think about where they came from, what the word means, Nicolaitan is a word, it means to conquer the people, to conquer the people. That's, where the, that's what the, the name means of this sect. And it was a sect, and, and based on all of the studying that I was able to do and, and, and look at what most people agree on, this is where this group came from. There was a guy by the name of Nicholas, and you'll remember him from Acts chapter 6, because he was one of the seven men that was chosen to wait upon the tables of the widows. But, but Nicholas, he was a proselyte. He was not a Jew. And so what they believe is that the Nicolaitans came from him when he apostatized or he turned from the truth and he became the founder of this antinomian, antinomian meaning no law, Gnostic group, right? This, this antinomian, this group that wanted to be all about deep knowledge and, and understanding of stuff. And they made this big distinction between flesh and spirit. And so they, these were these people, right? And so... That, that, that's what the Nicolaitans did, and so they came into the church. But here is the problem, is that they taught the people, listen to this now, the only way that you can conquer your flesh is by indulging it fully. 
What an easy way to live. Hallelujah. Hey, just do what you want. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Whatever feels good, right? Indulge your flesh. So, hey, listen, you want to partake of food? To, you want to partake in the slaughtering of the animals in the sacrifice to these idols and then go to the banquet feast? You do it. Doesn't matter. It's just flesh. Sexual immorality doesn't matter. It's just flesh. And so this, do you see why God hated this? Because God is like, hey, anybody who's going to come after me and follow me, take up your cross. Deny yourself. You don't, you don't indulge your flesh. You crucify your flesh. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't feed your flesh. You feed your spirit. You, you, you grow in grace and knowledge of who Jesus is. And so this is where this whole sect comes up. And that is the problem. The, what, what's the issue? The issue is that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. You, 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 just let, you just let them sit there before you for a little while. You, you just let them talk. You let them answer some questions and don't ever check them. And then before you know it, they're teaching, you know, a small group. Hallelujah. Before you know it, they're having the ear of the congregation and people are confused. And it's like, you know, it, you know I don't know about you, but to really be a Christian is, is kind of tough. To really be a follower of Jesus is kind of tough. Why? Because people aren't down with Jesus like that. They're down with the Jesus to bless them. They're down with the Jesus to make their life better. They're not down with the Jesus that says, listen, I want you to live for my glory, not for yourself. And so even in, in because like in American Christianity, we're not going to get killed, right, right, at this point for living for Jesus. There's other places that that is happening right now. Like if you want to live for him, I mean, your life is on the line literally, and this is fact. But even, even here where, where, you know, we have freedom of religion, it's still not that easy to be a Christian and to be a follower of Christ. And so we have to think about who we're hearing and what we're hearing. And so think about this, Ephesus. Remember that beautiful church, the first one? They, were, they, they rejected all false doctrine. Remember them? And yet they lost their first love. And what is Pergamum doing? Pergamum, they compromised with false teaching and they lost their distinction. They lost their distinction. In the midst of all of that, the city on a hill, they were to shine brightest in the midst of the city. They were to outshine the gods of the city because none of those gods did anything but take from them. Because you see, the beauty of our God is that he may take, he may require us to lay our lives down, but he gives us life abundantly. He gives us real life. He gives us lasting joy. He gives us lasting peace. And in the midst of all of this, you're sacrificing to all of these idols and you're doing all. And these gods are taking from you. They're not giving. But our God wants to give you abundant life. He wants to give you real life. He wanted them to have that. See, church, we have to realize truth is a dividing force. Did you hear me? It is a dividing force that must be balanced with grace. When we speak truth, we can't be jerks. We can't be insensitive. We can't think that it doesn't hurt. You know, when you're calling someone to sacrifice, when you're calling someone to lay their life down, that's painful. That's tough. That is a struggle that is inside of us for sure. But nonetheless, we have to realize this is that grace trains us to live righteously. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. But Titus chapter 2, verse 11, I think to verse 14. I'm going to commit these to memory as I'm going through this. Just a powerful portion of scripture. It speaks about the salvation that has appeared unto all men. And then he talks about the grace of God that trains us, teaches us to turn away from unrighteousness. 
this grace. What does grace do? The grace of God is not a license to sin. It doesn't excuse wretched lifestyles that bring God's judgment. What does it do? It calls us to living for the glory of God. The third thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say repentance is always an option. Repentance is always an option. How does Jesus close? He closes this letter to this church similar to how he does the others. Look at verse 16. He says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus reveals himself again to Pergamos as the one with the two-edged sword, and then he calls them to repentance, or he will come fight them with the sword. Now think about this. In Rome, these people were, were familiar with the sword. Remember Antipas? He was a person who was a martyr. And in that city, judgments were happening. Again, the throne of Satan is there. And so God, and, and so the, the emperor is making judgment calls. He, he wields the power of the sword in the natural sense. And yet Jesus shows them, but I have the eternal sword. The Romans, the, the emperors, they, they all, Trajan, all, they all have the power of the sword and the natural, but I have the eternal sword. And, 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 and when, when Jesus, see, this is the beauty of this, right? You read stuff like this, and I, I don't know, to me, it gets kind of depressing, it gets heavy. But you know what? To me, it is such a breath of fresh air when Jesus says, repent. How is that a breath of fresh air? Because he's saying, I'm giving you an opportunity. He's saying, I love you enough to interrupt you in your sin. I love you enough to interrupt you where you are and to call you to repentance because I don't want to come. If Jesus wanted to just come and judge you, you know what he would do? He would just show up on you. That's what he would do. He would just show up and just lay the smackdown of judgment on them. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He sends them word for them to repent because he doesn't want to come fight them. Not only that, what does he say in verse 17? He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. How do we overcome? By repentance. We overcome when we repent because what? Because in our repentance is where God gives us grace to overcome the sin that he's calling us to repentance for. He gives us the grace to overcome this. He says, he who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. To those who repent, they're promised hidden manna. They're promised this white stone with a new name written on it. What does the manna remind us of? The manna takes us back to the Ark of the Covenant again in the Old Testament where the Ark held the manna of God. But it also points us forward to Jesus who is the manna from heaven. Remember, he came, he is the bread of life. It, it also makes us look forward to Jesus who is the hidden manna until he reveals himself. And he says, you know what? When you, if you overcome, if you repent, you will partake of this hidden manna. In other words, you are going to receive the fullness of your transformation. Oh, that's exciting. You are going to receive your glorified body, not because of how great you are, not even because of how much you suffered in this life, but because you're going to finally partake of the manna of heaven. 
And then he encourages them with this white stone new name thing. And truth be told, I read, I read a couple of commentaries, and nobody really knows what this is. Some say that this is a stone that symbolizes a, you know, it's giving a picture of the, the, um, the salvation in a secular imagery, and then others are like, nah, that's not what that's talking about. The fact of the matter is this, is when you look at it, what they all kind of agree on is that it seems like what he's offering them is forgiveness and liberation of judgment. Given a new name, right, this new name, so, so no longer, if, if you have a new name, right, like if someone is trying, if you're guilty of something, your name is connected with that guilt. If you get a new name, guess what is gone? Uh, you know, except for your fingerprints, right? Like you got to do something about those. But anyway, but anyway, <laughs> if you can get a new ID and a new passport, a new social security number, and don't touch anything, you're good to go, right? You're no, you're no longer guilty, right? Yeah. The, the, the fact is, a new name, I get a, a new name, a stone, a white stone with a, with a new name, right? It, it, there's this symbolism that God is saying, I want to liberate you from judgment. I want to offer you forgiveness. And look, it should be clear to us, but it is so worth repeating. As long as we have breath in our lungs, God's forgiveness is not only possible, but it's accessible. God's forgiveness is not only a possibility, but it is accessible. Listen, Jesus is greater than our sin. Jesus is greater than our sin. The cross is stronger than our failures. And the grace of God is more powerful than our weakness. Those are encouraging words. When we think of the beauty of the gospel, that God who is good and all that he is, there is no shadow of turning. There is no darkness in him. He is good and holy and righteous. He created us in a perfect state, in, in a state where there was no sin, and yet man decided to rebel against him. And that rebellion did what? It caused Adam and Eve to be kicked out of the garden. In other words, separated from God. And from that moment, moment on, men were trying to get back to God and, and trying to appease him, and yet nothing appeased him. Man would always be separated from God except for his grace. We see pictures of it throughout the New Testament. He chooses Abraham to do what? To be a blessing to all nations. How is that blessing? Financial? No. Come on now. The blessing of Abraham was the seed of Jesus Christ that was prophesied in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is the seed that comes bruising the head of the serpent, hallelujah, crushing the head of the serpent. What does all that mean? That means that what Jesus did is he tore the separation between God and man. His grace is greater than our weaknesses. The cross is stronger than our sin. What we could never do for ourselves, Jesus does for us us. He gives us a new name. He gives us a new identity. He washes us clean when we repent and we put our faith in him. He encourages our faith. And I want you to remember, he's writing this to the church. He's not writing this to some lost people that never heard about him. He's writing this to the church. And so here is my closing question. Are there any areas of compromise in your life that you need to repent of? Are there any areas of compromise in your life that you need to humble your heart before God in this moment and say, God, I don't want to compromise anymore. 
I don't, I, I don't want to. I don't want to live in compromise any longer. I want to live for you and for your glory. God, I don't want to give a little bit to my flesh or to, or, or to bad teaching. God, I don't want to compromise. See, the beauty, again, is that his grace is sufficient. And if you will repent in this moment, if you will humble yourself in this moment, he promises to forgive us. He promises to cleanse us. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your grace, the wonder of your mercy. And God, we stand before you with our hearts humbled, asking you to search us, asking you to show us where we have compromised in our lives. And Lord, we ask you to cleanse us, to forgive us, to purify us. Make us holy and righteous unto you and give us the grace to overcome, not just in this moment, but Lord God, in the moments that we'll face, in the moments that we will encounter temptation to compromise our beliefs, to compromise our convictions of truth. God, give us the grace. Give us the strength Lord, we thank you. We thank you, God. And Father, if there's anyone in this place that needs to know you, that hasn't encountered you, God, that hasn't surrendered their lives to you, God, draw them to you by your love, by your grace, and by your power, God. May they be changed from glory to glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Come on and give the Lord a hand of praise. He is worthy.